Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had. And really, as we think of Christmas and think of adoring Christ, uh, what a joyful reality that is. And certainly as we think about that, we are continuing to ask ourselves the question uh, that we started last week as we start to move towards Christmas, uh, thinking about what child is this? A familiar song, familiar question, and one that uh, we continue to ask as we make our way through the Christmas story, as we might call it, within the gospel of Matthew. And as we do so this morning, what we're going to be looking at is really understanding our need for Him, and to see our need really in the way in which the rest of the genealogy there in Matthew chapter 1 is really unveiled for us to look and to see. In a lot of circumstances, the way in which we see the need is we have to look and we have to see what's missing, right? A lot of the ways in which we understand we need to go Christmas shopping is by looking under the Christmas tree and realizing there's nothing under there. Or maybe you realize it because you look in the bank and you think there's more in there than there should be this time of year. We, what we recognize is that we see the need oftentimes by seeing what's missing and understanding that. And really that's the way in which we look and behold the glory of who Christ is and understanding the whole scope of His kingly glory here unveiled for us here in Matthew chapter 1. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start right there in the middle of verse 6, right where we left off. We're going to read all the way down through verse 17, and then we will work our way back through there uh, as we uh, just sort of proceed through the text. So read with me Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse, the middle of verse 6, and this is what we read. It says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliaud, and Eliaud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this moment now, Lord, that by this very interesting text, really revealed to us in a very interesting way, Lord, that you would use this passage in particular now to open our eyes to see how deep our need for you really is. Lord, that we would see with pristine clarity, perhaps today for the first time, just how much we need Jesus. Father, let us see so that we may understand the great wonder of what you have given us in Christ. Father, open our eyes to see the need that we may see the wonder of Jesus for all of who He is, that we may trust Him and know Him here today. Lord, by Your Spirit and for Your glory, 
teach us in a way that stirs our hearts to continue to rejoice in Jesus together. And Lord, we ask all of this in the mighty name of our precious Savior, the Emmanuel, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we read this passage, and really as we jump right back into this rather uh, interesting genealogy, perhaps one that we don't often want to read aloud because of all of the interesting uh, spelling and all the different names that are thrown out there, what we are reminded of as we jump back in here is even from last week, we saw understanding who Jesus is and understanding him as son of David and son of Abraham, that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior. And that now as we start to read, we're starting to see the need for him as we walk through the kings of Judah and really walk all the way up until the time when Christ was born. It's like one of those things that people often do this time of year when you've got a little extra time on your hands, right? You pull one of those tables out in the corner and you pull all of those interesting holiday puzzles out of the closet, right? And all of a sudden you start to put the pieces together. And as you work on puzzles and you do those sorts of things, what you do is that you start to see the outline of shapes and you realize, okay, well, that's what I need. And you start to search over here to find the piece that's going to fit. And you do that over and over. It's got to have the right picture. It's got to have the right shape. It's got to fit in precision with just exactly what you need. This list of kings and really this genealogy as it's unloaded before us, what we see is that very thing. We start to see our need by looking and seeing all of the missing pieces that are found in all of the kings of Judah. And so we pick up really where we left off where he says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David is overwhelmingly familiar to us, right? We remember the shepherd boy, remember the boy who was anointed king, right? Remember the one who was Picked out of all of his, his brothers, here's the, the little boy, and we remember the story with David and Goliath, and we remember all the wonder of just how God kept him alive, and all the details with his interactions with King Saul. We remember him, and really remember him as one who is described biblically as a man after God's own heart. And yet, even with that recognition, we're reminded by this text in particular, David's the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was not immune from sin, was he? What a clear declaration found right here. You remember the story from 2 Samuel chapter 11 that he should be out in battle, right? And yet he finds himself taking this leisurely stroll out on his balcony. He looks in a direction he really shouldn't look. He takes too much of an interest (coughs) and eventually takes the wife of Uriah into his own home. She conceives. And then he sets about to try to hide his sin. Right? He invites Uriah home from the battlefield. And he's like, oh, why don't you go spend some time with your wife? And then Uriah's too faithful to the king and too faithful to the Lord to do that very thing. And so all the ways in which David had plotted to try to sort this all out and really to hide and conceal his own sin didn't work. So he steps it up a little further and he sends Uriah all the way to the forefront of the battle where he knows for sure he will be killed and sure enough, he is. And then even when we read this, we are reminded of the depth and of the effects of sin and how it works in our lives. One thing inevitably leads to another. You try to cover it, you try to hide it. And the more you try to hide it, the more you try to cover it, the worse it gets. We've all lived this before, haven't we? Much as we remember David, 
as a man after God's own heart, we also recognize he was not a perfect man in any way, shape, or form. He's eventually confronted. He repents. He, he pens perhaps one of the greatest expressions of repentance you'll find anywhere in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God. The child that is initially conceived dies. Solomon is born, who goes by another name as well, Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. But even from reading just this latter portion of verse 6, we are reminded of who we need. We need a king who is perfectly righteous, and David is not that. We're starting to see the missing pieces here, that we would look forward with anticipation of the one whom God would send. We need a perfectly righteous king who will not fall prey to temptation. We need someone greater than David. And so we look to who comes next, and who is that? Of course, it's Solomon. We're told he was, David's the father of Solomon, and of course Solomon's the father of Rehoboam. And as we think about Solomon, right, you think of everything starting off so well. There's so much good going on. The temple is being built. There's all these pictures of atonement, right, and these, these pictures that look forward to the full and final atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross. And every sacrifice that's taking place at the temple is like a picture looking forward to Jesus who would come. And you think of Solomon and him praying for wisdom and God blessing him with that. But then as you continue to read along with the text of Scripture, you realize Solomon is frail and he's beset with his own weaknesses and he really loved women a lot and a lot of women. Eventually winding up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then all of a sudden you start to think about Christmas and you put those two things together and you're like, what in the world am I going to do with this? It's a sad story, really. And when you think of the testimony of how Scripture describes this and you read in the latter portion of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, where it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And you look at Solomon and you say, I, I can see the need again. We need a king who's not led astray by his own lusts. A king who's not drawn into sin. A victorious king, a a king who's victorious over sin itself, who is faithful and unchanging, who can be tempted in every way as we are and yet be without sin. But that's not Solomon, is it? And so from Solomon, we just move on. We move on and continue on the story. We find Rehoboam. Rehoboam, from the outset, proves to be profoundly unwise. He simply listens to all the yes men who are around him, who will tell him whatever he wants to hear. His rule is full of hard toil and hard burdens, and the nation splits in half, and all that's left is Judah and little Benjamin. His rule is full of evil. And it's like you read, and we're not even getting very far, and by the time you get to Rehoboam, you're like, "This, this just feels like it all just fell on the ground and shattered like a glass ornament right in front of us. 
All these promises of a king who, is, who would come. And then we're looking at as the line of kings sort of unrolls. And you're looking, this just can't be. Look at what a mess it is already. We need a king who is wise. Who is humble. Who is good. And Rehoboam is none of those things. So it's like we keep looking. It's like the picture and the puzzle just isn't coming together the way we thought it would. And so from Rehoboam, we look and we see it, and he's, so Rehoboam is the father of Abijah. Abijah reigned for 17 years, 17 years full of wickedness and unfaithfulness. And yet God remains faithful in the midst of all that. In fact, reaffirms his promise of the coming king, (laughs) excuse me, That God has not forgotten. And that no amount of human unfaithfulness can unravel the faithfulness of God. We're reminded of that even in the reign of Abijah. And we see in him this this reminder and this seeing the need of a king who is true to the Lord and bold with the truth. And from Abijah, we read in he's the father of Asaph. And of course, by the time we get to this point, you see it here with Asaph. You see it also further on when you look at Amos or Amon. We start to see various spellings and that sort of thing. And there's a reason for that, right? When you're translating things from Hebrew into Greek, there's a lot of spelling variations that take place. And then when you translate from Hebrew to Greek to English, you can imagine things. Spelling letters get interesting. <coughs> we have a clear biblical reference, and we, we understand and know who all of these people are. Asaph, also referred to biblically as Asa, he's a good king, he's a faithful king, he's destroying idols, he's leading people to trust in the Lord, he sought to restore proper worship, and we know he took it seriously because at one point in his life, he even rebuked his mom's idolatry. You want to know if somebody takes something seriously? See if they're willing to rebuke their mother. He did. And so we're reading along, and we're like, whoa, he's taking this very seriously. And, it, and yet, as the text continues to unfold, we realize, but he's not wholly true to the Lord. He trusted in himself. It's like you come to the end of his story, and you're like, what is going on? You just start to feel deflated. You start to feel like one of those yard ornaments that's sitting out when the electricity goes off, and it's just sort of slumped over. it's how it can often feel this time of year isn't it you get so weary and forlorn start to get real cynical about things like oh well it just figures here we go again instead of looking and seeing the missing piece and instead of looking at some person to fulfill that look at the Emmanuel the God who came in the flesh to fulfill that See, we need a king with enduring faithfulness. So we turn the page and we look at Jehoshaphat. Asaph's the father of Jehoshaphat. And you think of Jehoshaphat and he's a faithful king. He didn't have any idols. He's courageous in the ways of the Lord. He sets up teaching Levites to travel all over the place and teach people the word of the Lord. And then you think when there's three enemies that unite together to come and fight against the people of the Lord. He leads them in a time of collective, corporate repentance and prayer. 
And they look to the Lord and confess their inability. They say, look, we don't have any idea what to do, but our eyes, Lord, are upon you. What unfolds from there is a wonderful picture where the army is led out by the choir, singing praises to the Lord, and the Lord has a mighty, amazing victory. You're thinking, okay, this is looking so promising, this is looking so wonderful, and yet 25 years into his reign, the high places are still there. Places of false worship are still there. We start to realize the people had sin issues that Jehoshaphat was not equipped to fix. And ultimately, he just quit trying. We need a king who can cleanse the hearts of his people. To not just deal with external matters, but to deal with matters of the heart. And one who's not going to quit on us. One who finds us as we are and just continues to work and continues to, to transform us. And who never gives up. But even that we've made it this far through the list here. And it's like the, the list continues to grow. And we realize very quickly that our needs far exceed our means to provide. Now it's starting to feel like Christmas. Our needs are just far too plentiful, and our means are far too small. It's like you're looking at the list, and you're looking at what's in the bank, and you're thinking, there's no way this is going to work. We can't afford this. We need more than we can provide for ourselves. And then we look down, and we start to continue to read, and we think, well, this list just keeps on growing. Because Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. Joram, also known as Jehoram, ruled for eight years. He was wicked. He married Ahab's daughter. He murdered all of his brothers. He was rebuked by the prophet Elijah. And we start to see, okay, we're starting to see the the pieces in the puzzle again. We need a king who does not require the rebuke of Elijah. We need a king who is the praise of the Elijah who is to come. The one of whom it's going to be said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we continue to read and we think and we're processing, we're following along in our minds with, you know, Kings and Chronicles, we realize right here that the genealogy actually skips three generations. We find ourselves going down to Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. He was good at first, but then he was so profoundly prideful. And pride was his undoing. It got to one of those circumstances where he just thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so he decided one day he's going to go and offer incense as a priest inside the temple. He knew good and well he shouldn't do that. It was very obvious he shouldn't do that. People tried to tell him not to do that, and he did it anyway. And God struck him with leprosy. And that was the end of his reign. See, we need a humble king who can lead us boldly before the throne of grace, who is also in, him, in himself a priest. Clearly, that's not Uzziah. 
we need someone far better. Maybe we can look again. We start to, you know, it's like the puzzle. It's got so many missing pieces. And we think, well, this just keeps getting worse. Because then you read of Jotham and you think, well, Jotham's mostly faithful, right? And yet in his whole reign, he would not lead the people to faithfulness. He would not remove the high places. He just let them be. You don't want to upset the apple cart. You don't want to stir anything up. Just go along to get along. We know good and well, just going along to get along usually leads to a pretty bad place, doesn't it? Just pretending like everything's okay when you know good and well it's not, and be like, I just don't feel like dealing with that right now. See, we're not like that about things medically, are we? Like, oh, we'll just let it ride for a little while. At least you shouldn't be. But a lot of times we are like that spiritually, aren't we? I'll just leave it alone. Maybe nothing will happen. We'll just pretend like it's not a big deal. We realize in reading this, all of a sudden it's like we see another need. We need a king who is bold with the truth. And what ultimately happens is that this sort of tepid tepid care for the Lord in one generation soon soon turns to just blatant, abject rebellion against the Lord in the next generation. Because Jotham is the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz was horrifyingly reprobate in so many ways. Made bales, he's sacrificing children, he's building pagan altars, he's putting pagan altars inside the temple, and then he's locking the doors of the temple. And we're reading this, we're like, well, this just feels like everything's gone to pieces. It's like we're looking at the picture of Christmas over here, and we're like, there's just too many missing things. How could it be? How could anyone meet all of the needs that we have? Because not only do we need all this, we look at all the needs that we already have in our own life, and then we're like, there's no way. There's no way this could possibly work. Our needs are too vast and too broad. We need a king who's going to lead us to worship in spirit and in truth, not lead us into falsehood. Then God allows Hezekiah to reign. Hezekiah is a good king. He reigns for 29 years. He reopens the temple. He restores worship. Passover takes place. He's standing boldly and confidently, even as the Assyrian army comes to menace the people of the Lord. And yet he proves again to be entirely unwise. Because he starts to give the Babylonians tours of the temple. Like, hey, let me show you all the wealthy stuff we've got in here, right? It'd be like you inviting a bunch of thieves to come into your house. Be like, hey, look at all this stuff. By the way, this is when I'm going out of town. He proves to be, <coughs> excuse me, entirely unwise. We need a king who is wisdom incarnate, whose wisdom leads us to help. Not to ruin. And so after Hezekiah comes Manasseh. Manasseh is 12 years old when he begins to reign. And he reigns for 55 years. And for most of his life he was exceptionally evil. Profoundly evil. 
pursuing all manner of wickedness, a plethora of idols, sacrificing children, practicing witchcraft, practicing sorcery. I mean, 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9 describes him in this way. It says this, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Eventually what happens is Manasseh is captured, he's humbled, and he repents. He spends the rest of his life seeking to destroy all of the idols, but the problem was is that he had led his people, God's people, into such profound evil that they enjoyed the evil more than they enjoyed the repentance of their king. And again, we find ourselves in need of a king who can transform and change the hearts of his people. It's not Manasseh. And so Manasseh is the father of Amos, or I often refer to as Amon, who reigned for two years, who was full of evil. We see in his life just the need for a faithful and true king. And then comes Josiah, who's good, and he's restoring worship, and he's removing idols, and he's ending all the child sacrifice, and he's having the the law read to the people, and the people are repenting. But Josiah eventually finds himself thinking that he's absolutely invincible. Goes off into battle under disguise gets himself killed. And it's like we're looking at the puzzle still. And there's such a gap in this picture. This doesn't feel like Christmas at all. We need a king who's unconquerable, who's absolutely victorious, who is actually invincible. Well, it's not Josiah. We're told Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah, also referred to as Coniah, (coughs) skips a few generations again here. Coniah reigns for three months. He's wicked. He's really a puppet king, you might say. And pronounced against him is a curse in Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30 says this, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. And we think, what? I mean, Jeconiah had a child. We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 17, but that child did not have a child. The line ends. We need a king who's not cursed, who can bear our curse and redeem us from the curse of the law. And this leads us right into the deportation to Babylon. And it's, it feels like now we're looking at the line, and we're looking at the picture, and we're looking at all the promises, and it just feels like it's crumbling right before us. See, if we're honest, I mean, we, we can say all we want about Christmas cheer and all this other stuff, but for a lot of us, this is how life really feels. We can sing all the songs we want, but when we walk inside the house, the tears start to come down. We can get it all cleaned up and dressed up and look nice and whatever else, but then when we get inside the car and we start to drive home is when we really start to deal with the fact it just feels like it's all coming to pieces. I can't do this. I can't make it work. I can't fix this. I'm not sufficient in myself. I need someone else. And everyone who keeps showing up just seems to illustrate the fact that I need someone else. 
And in the end, what we see is this leads all the way into the deportation, into the exile in Babylon. The kings of Judah led the people into exile, into curse. They were not sufficient in themselves. They couldn't provide what was needed. They couldn't give enduring wisdom and grace and love and patience and hope. It's like we're looking at the picture and we're looking at the missing pieces and we think, there's more needs than I can possibly fathom here. Who in the world could help us now? And see, it's at this point we start to think, I got to find him. I got to find him. I've got to figure this out. I've got to sort out who this is. I've got to go chasing after him. But don't you see how good God is here, how the story continues to unfold? Instead of us trying to figure it all out on our own and say, i got to fix this, i got to find him. No, no, no. He came to find you. He came to us. He says, I see your needs and I see your problems and I see that this is absolutely insurmountable to you. So I'm coming to you. We worry about finding him. But if we look again, we'll see that he found us. We start to see the need for our king to be at home with us. And in verse 12 it says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. It's always fun to say. But you think, well, after we just read what we read from Jeremiah chapter 22, how in the world can we sort all this out? Well, interestingly enough, if you start to unpack the genealogy here in Matthew and start to unpack the genealogy there in Luke chapter 3, what you start to realize is that Matthew's genealogy really is a legal lineage that leads all the way through Joseph. Luke's presents a more blood lineage that leads through Mary. And then ultimately, when you're reading along in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, and you see the distinction between the son of David, the blood relative of David, in Luke chapter 3, is not Solomon. It's Nathan. You realize here what God has done. He's keeping his promise in displaying who Jesus, Jesus is in his legal lineage through Joseph. And then a reminder of his blood lineage in Luke chapter 3 that we would see this is how he makes his way through that curse pronounced in Jeremiah chapter 22. Neri was actually the biological uh, Father of Shealtiel. And yet Jeconiah adopted him to make him his own, making him a legal heir. Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel. Which maybe you're reading that and maybe you're thinking, well, that name sounds vaguely familiar, and it should. Because <coughs> if you're reading along in the Minor Prophets and you find yourself reading in the book of Haggai, the last verse in the book of Haggai, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. There he is. My servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He will be like a signature on God's promise. We need the promise fulfilled. We need him to come to us. We need his help. We need the one who is mighty over all of this. 
who can take all the gaps in the picture and open our eyes to see that he fulfills everyone. Every little missing piece actually is the same person who puts the whole picture together in and of himself. And so we enter into the list between the Testaments. Because in verses 13 all the way down through verse 15, and we read all the fun names, right? Jerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Joseph. Excuse me, of Jacob. You think, well, that's fun to read. Like, how did they know all this? Well, in fact, they kept genealogical lists in the temple. And all those genealogical lists were actually destroyed when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But this was written before A.D. 70. They would have had access to all these lists. And so they're tracking along and following along. And everybody, everybody who would have read Matthew in its first unveiling, when they would have re- first read it, they could have said, well, I'm going to go check the temple records myself. And sure enough, they would have found this is exactly how it would have been unveiled and revealed. And so what we're doing is we're crossing this line and we're thinking all the way through Babylon and from, then from Babylon to Persia and then Persia to Greece, Greece to Rome. There's 400 years of keeping track, 400 years of waiting. It's like the people were finally back home, but home did not feel right. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's how it is at Christmas. A lot of times we go home for Christmas. It's like when we pull up in the driveway, we realize, well, this doesn't feel quite as homey as it used to. There's people missing. A lot of times we get together, and in our get-togethers, we find ourselves enjoying all the get-together and then all of a sudden being reminded of who's not filling that empty seat. It hurts. We feel the weight of the missing pieces. And the holidays can be so hard as we ponder such loss. And we can sing of peace on earth. And yet do so with such distress in our own hearts. See, we need the king who not only fulfills all the picture and all the promises, but we need the king to come and make a home with us. To come into our lives and help us. Because verse 16 just picks up, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Again, Jacob being the father of Joseph, so the legal line goes through Joseph's dad. The bloodline goes through Joseph's father-in-law. That's why if you're reading in Luke chapter 3, you read, He lied. Joseph being born in complete obscurity, just another boy with his dad, waiting for the Lord, waiting for the faithfulness to his promise, hearing all, he will help us, he's coming, there's coming a day where he's going to help us, and hearing that as a boy. And Joseph, the husband of Mary, did you see the shift in language there? Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of Mary. Jesus' bloodline does not run through Joseph. 
Jesus' legal line runs through Joseph. But his bloodline runs through Mary. Even in the shift of language here, we see the emphatic declaration that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the one, as is described in the text that we'll look at next week. Verse 20. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the Savior. He's the Emmanuel. He's God with us. (coughs) Who else could meet our needs? Who else could we want to come to us? Fully God, fully man, to redeem us from the curse of the law. He's the one that we're looking for. And then it's like, okay, well, hang on a second, Jesus. Let me get my list. Because it's pretty long, and I'm not sure you can afford it. Because I'm looking for a king here who's perfectly righteous. Who's tempted in every way as I am, and yet was without sin. Who's bold in doing what's right. Who's always true and always faithful. Who cleanses hearts. Who's the praise of the Elijah who is to come. Who is the humble servant and priest who is bold with the truth who leads us to worship in spirit and truth who is wisdom incarnate who changes the desires of the hearts of his people who is humble who is mighty who is eternal what do you think of that list jesus it's like he has a smile on his face he's like that's me here i am i came to you We need him to come to us amid all the clutter and all the glitz and all the veneer of the decor that hides the hurts and the fears and the sin in our own hearts. We need him. And that he's so good. And instead of waiting for us to find him, he comes to get us. To make a home with us. Do you see the need for him? Do you look inside your own heart and your own life? And see just how profoundly similar to all these kings we actually are? We're not better than these guys. We're probably worse. And it's in the admission of that, when we see our need, then all of a sudden we look and we see Jesus, we say, yes, Lord. Make a home in my life. Make a home in me. Because the only one who can help me now is God with me. And that's exactly who he is. Jesus who was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's like when it just seemed like you're counting generations. And I know what some of y'all are doing right now. You're looking through here and you're counting, aren't you? Like, I want to make sure. It's in there. But we also admitted, I mean, even along the way, it's like, well, we skip three generations here, we skip a few generations here. What's going on here? I mean, 
broadly speaking, we can see how God guided all of this, from Abraham to David, David to the deportation, deportation to the Christ. Of course, the Christ making reference to the Messiah, the one who fulfills the three anointed roles of the Old Testament. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king. He's the full and final revelation of the truth. He is the one through whom we have access to God and our only mediator and the only one that's required. And he is our king. He is the Christ. I mean, it seems absolutely impossible reading through the list until you get to the end and you realize, okay, Jesus is the only one who could do this. And as we find ourselves this time of year especially reflecting on hard situations, maybe, maybe you find yourself this morning just feeling absolutely hopeless. Maybe your whole world has just been piled upon with broken promises, and you lift your eyes to Jesus, and we're saying, could it be? Yes, God is faithful to his promise to redeem and reconcile sinners to himself. Across the times of judges, kings, and priests, across times of theocracy, monarchy, and hierarchy. And you're reading along here, and you're like, well, 14 this, 14 this, 14 this. What's the deal with 14? Because we're skipping generations. Does it make it easier to memorize? Yes. Is that the only thing that's going on? No. Because as you're thinking about the names and where this comes from, and you start to think about languages, what we realize is that this number 14 is like a giant arrow pointing to the fulfillment of the line of David. Well, where do you get that from? Well, if you're reading the names and you're reading, the, in fact, the name David in Hebrew... If you're reading Hebrew, of course, you're reading from uh, right to left, and of course, it's, it's fun to do, and so you've got the consonants, and then around the consonants, you've got vowel pointings. And so the continent, consonants, the profound sort of stick-out letters there, there'd only be three of them in David, right? DVD. And then if you were counting along in the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew letters actually correspond with Hebrew numbers. So you go Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav. So Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, that's four, D. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, that's six. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, that's four. little math quiz here. What's four plus six plus four? There you go. I hope you all got it. It's 14. It's like if we needed just one little thing, it's like, look, lean in. It's Him. He's exactly who you need. Whatever your need is this morning, when you ask the question, what child is this? He's the king we all need. Precisely so. And then even as we look back across the span of of the ages, you can look back all the way across the genealogy of Jesus. And what you see in one consistent pattern after another is that in every person, man or woman, there's sin. Right? Over and over and over and over and over again. The profound threat across humanity is sin. 
And we see our needs so clearly. We start to look in our own lives. We think, well, well, I'm guilty of lust. I'm guilty of pride. I've worshipped things that I shouldn't have worshipped before. Taken things that don't belong to me. Dishonored my parents. And you start to think of the authority against which we've sinned, right? Because it's very easy for us to sort of trivialize it. But then when you think of the vastness of God's authority and that you've sinned against him, against his authority, you start to see how profoundly desperate our situation is. And then you start to look and you see and you think of Jesus coming in the flesh, living in perfect righteousness, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin and going to the cross and dying in our place. That all the punishment that we, <laughs> that we deserve for all eternity against our, our lust and our pride and our fear and our hate, the full outpouring of the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus, fully God and fully man, who endured every bit of it, who in the words of Spurgeon, drank damnation dry, laid down his life, and three days later took it up again. That's our Jesus. That's who came. That's who we celebrate at Christmas. What child is this? This is the child you need. Because this child, just like Tim said, didn't stay a child. This child grew up, went to the cross, died for you, and rose again. That through repentance and faith, you would have forgiveness and everlasting life in his name. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your backstory is, there's hope in Jesus. He's the king we need. May we all run to him in faith today. Perhaps you're here and you've never received him before. And all of a sudden, by the work of God's spirit and work through his word, you see the need. Trust in Jesus today. Cry out to him in faith. Say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And you will leave this place made right with a righteous and holy God. However the spirit leads in your hearts and lives this morning, look To Jesus, who's the king we all need.